That must be your friend over there. That didn't leave much of him. Must have cut his heart out, eh? Yes. That's what I meant. Poor bastard. The Knight Rider. That is his name. The Knight Rider. The Knight Rider. Remember him when you look at the night sky. Hey, you're listening to Sorted Cinema, the demented all-genre film offshoot of the now-dearly-departed Sound on Sight podcast. This week, it is part one of our two-part look at the Mad Max series, courtesy of, uh, I guess we, we can now say legendary, uh, writer-director George Miller. In the next episode, we will be talking about Mad Max Fury Road, which the internet absolutely cannot stop talking about along with the third entry, Beyond Thunderdome. But for this uh, this particular episode, we're going to be taking it all the way back to 1979's original Mad Max, followed by its sequel, uh, The Road Warrior, a.k.a. Mad Max 2. Uh, we are rejoined by former co-host Edgar Chapu. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey, you're listening to Sorted Cinema. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as ever, by Mr. Ricky D. I am the Knight Rider. I am a field-ejected suicide machine. I am the rocker. I am the roller. I am the out-of-controller. You going to stick to that? Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, we're also joined, uh, for the first time in a while, by Mr. And you've got a few more seconds to think of a cool intro if you want one. you got to think. Okay. Uh, Edgar Shepi. What's up, guys? That's it? That's all you want to do? <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. It's it's nice to be back though. It's, it has been a while, and uh, it's it's fun to be back in the. Uh, I, should, I was about to say the saddle, but I guess I should say in the uh, front seat of my uh, what Ford Interceptor or whatever it is, the V8. Yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about cars uh, or sports or any other manly thing, so uh, I'm just not I'm not even going to make an attempt at this. But uh, what have you been up to? Oh, goodness me. Hosted a party the other night. That was fun. Uh, watching some basketball, talking talking about basketball, uh, Facebooking about basketball. Uh, that sums up a lot of what I've been doing lately. A little bit of work on the side. Need to make some money, you know? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, as if, if anyone's been paying any attention, you may have noticed that a movie called uh, Fury Road came out this past weekend. Uh, we're obviously going to talk about it more in the next podcast when we actually review it. I just wanted to say for now, though, that watching everyone on Twitter and everyone and everywhere else just sort of explode with glee over this entire weekend has been delightful. Yeah, it, it's actually it, it is refreshing because how often do we become so snarky and start lambasting these these Hollywood movies, you know, for once it makes uh, makes for a bit of a change, a bit of a change of pace and attitude on the internet. There was a lot of positivity recently. Yeah, I've seen virtually no snark 
or negativity, even from people who didn't like it that much. There seems to be like a general consensus that it's at least worthwhile. Anyway, we'll get to that in the next episode. I promise we'll have so much to say about Fury Road, but for now, uh, we're going to take it back to the originals. Uh, before we get into the review, I just wanted to mention, as uh, as I do throughout this season, that we have con coverage. I love that we have con coverage. Uh, Zornitsa is kicking ass uh, with those con reviews. Uh, we just got some up for uh, The Lobster, the new Yorgos Lenthimos, a.k.a. the director of Dogtooth, uh, as well as a couple more. And I'm sure she'll be making her way through the uh, competition slate over the next week. Uh, anything else we should mention right now, Ricky? Not really. Just the uh, podcast is coming to an end, officially, finally, after eight years. Got three more shows left to record. Mad Max Double Special, and then our big 500 episode. Yeah, it's the 100th sorted, plus 400 sound on sites, and that's 500. Some kids grew up with Star Wars. I I grew up with Mad Max. So this is... What, what Star Wars is for most people, Mad Max is for me. I'm so excited to talk about these movies. Yay! Well, in that case, uh, let's get right to it. Let's hear a clip from 1979's Mad Max. Tomorrow, in a world gone mad. <laughs> the only law will be a renegade squad of suicidal cops. He's my prisoner, and he's not walking out that door. And the open road will be controlled by gangs of glory roaders. Max is a cop, one of the best. Where does they're out to get you? Scoot jockeys? Yeah, no man trash. Mm. Well, I'll add it to my thread collection. <laughs> You made the news again. Charges relating hmm. to the slaying of a main force patrol officer Who was he? in a road blockade accident last month. Just another glory roader, I guess. Toe cutter is a glory roader, one of the most sadistic. Anything I say, anything you say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. Take him away. <gasps> I want my baby. You've not got a sense of humor. Please don't hurt my baby. You've got a pretty face, though. Both want the other dead. But only one can have his way. Mad Max. You don't want to make Max mad. Because when Max gets mad, he gets even. American International presents Mad Max, the maximum force of the future. That was a clip from 1979's Mad Max, a dystopian sci-fi action film, I guess you might say, as, as well as a little bit of a, uh, a revenge movie and a road movie. And a few other things rolled into one, a bit of a grindhouse movie as well, uh, starring a uh, very young Mel Gibson as Mac Rockatansky, a uh, a family man, or at least he starts out that way, and a cop who happens to be trying to be maintain uh, some semblance of justice and order in a uh, in a society 
gone uh, well to seed. It's it's not quite the level of degradation you see in some other post-apocalypse films. There's still uh, some semblance of uh, of a police system. There's some semblance of a court, but it's all pretty much in a shambles. Uh, but there are at least buildings, which is more than you can say for some of the other films we'll be, we'll be talking about. Uh, and uh, Max attempts to uh, to keep it all together with his family and his work uh, as as society crumbles around him, but uh, things don't necessarily pan out in the way that he'd hope, hence Mad Max. I guess that's uh, that's about all we should say for now. I'm going to start with you, Ricky, since, I mean, you just, you you threw some pretty bold words out there. Uh, this is clearly a bit of a formative movie for you. So tell me, uh, where was the first time you saw Mad Max? First time I saw Mad Max was on home video. I, uh, I watched Mad Max and A Nightmare on Elm Street on the same week, and those two movies forever changed my view on cinema. So not only is Mad Max a genre-changing cinematic experience for cinema in general, but it was a life-changing experience for me in terms of how I view movies. I think this movie is just incredible, innovative, radical, stunning, cutting-edge, edgy, shocking, gruesome, sexy, avant-garde, absurd. Just a wild ride from start to finish. I absolutely adore this film. I've seen it multiple times. Um, I love Mel Gibson in the lead play, here playing Mad Max, uh, more so than Tom Hardy. We'll get to that next week. But uh, I adore this movie, and I have so much to say about it. But overall, it's you know it stood the te- test of time. Like I've seen it over and over, and each and every single time I see it, I, I find more reasons to love it. Could you estimate how many times you've seen it? Um. I would say like maybe like seven or eight times. That's not bad. I th- not, I, th- I thought it was going to be like dozens of times. No, not like Menace to Society, which I saw 32 times. <laughs> Do you know the, did you see it 32 times in theaters? No, 32 times. I never actually, I wish I saw Mad Max on the big screen, uh, but that was before my time. No, uh, Menace to Society, I never saw it in theaters. It was the first VHS I owned. So I used to watch it over and over with my friends. I just, how do you how do you know you watched it exactly thirty two times? Because we counted. <laughs> okay, so it was like in the space of one summer you watched it thirty two times or something. Uh, two or three summers. All right, I'm just curious. I'm just really fixated on the fact that you watch Menace to Society thirty two times. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Edgar, do you have that kind of uh, symbiotic relationship with with Mad Max or the Mad Max movies? I wouldn't call it symbiotic. I'm relatively new to it, even though I am a big fan. I. This first one that we're about to discuss in length, I saw it for the first time maybe five or six years ago. So it really hasn't been around my life for a long time. But I was greatly, greatly impressed. And in those five or six years, I think I've seen it four or five times now. Uh, That's how much it it impressed me just for how much it does with so little. Uh, I think it, it knows exactly what it's trying to do, even though it's... You know, it, it is, as you put it, you know, a bit of a, a grindhouse movie. So it's, uh, uh, you know, there's some rough edges, you know, here and there in the film. But it feels really big. It feels really, really epic and cool. So I think that's what really caught my eye. Uh, in addition to uh, a pretty awesome introduction to uh, the great humanitarian that is Mel Gibson. Uh, for my part, I actually saw, um, I'm doing this all wrong. Because I, I, my intention was to watch all the Mad Max movies and then go see Fury Road. Uh, the opposite ended up happening. I, I ended up having to see Fury Road first because I was going to wait to see it. Everyone was talking about it so much that I was like, well, fuck it. I better just go see it before somebody ruins it for me somehow like that was possible. Whoa, language, Simon. Uh, so 
so I went to see Fury Road and then, um, and, uh, so then I watched, uh, so I went from Fury Road to the original Mad Max, which is, uh, having not yet watched Thunderdome, uh, I, I assume that's about the greatest level of contrast you can possibly get. And, uh, I mean, what's, what's, what was incredible, uh, going from one to the other. I mean, obviously they are separated by, you know, 36 years, uh, which is not, which is not an insignificant period of time, but they could not be more different in terms of scale, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms what, what of tone. I, uh, well, to- yeah, I, I would say there's some similarity in terms of tone. But uh, just everything about the approach, uh, the filmmaking approach, is totally different, uh, and that's partially out of necessity and partially out of out of approach. Um, that being said, I I can't say I was totally bowled over by it. Uh, I I enjoyed it, but it, there were a few niggling things uh, holding it back for me, which I, I are probably more my fault than the movie's fault. Uh, that being said, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, hmm. So, uh, hmm, indeed. Uh, I I I. I the thing that really stood out to me uh, on this first viewing anyway was how nasty it is. It's a really nasty little movie, especially compared to the other ones in, in, in the series that I've seen. It's, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's, uh, I, I'd say I would call it a little bit mean spirited. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, you, it's funny. Cause you should have, if you started with fury road, you should have gone backwards. I think. The tone and the approach of all four movies are completely different. And I think Mad Max is the bleakest of all four. It puts Max, the main character, through hell. I mean, everything he holds dear, everything he loves is taken away from him. It starts as a fairly typical action-adventure movie, but it turns quickly into a revenge tale. So what's interesting about this film is I think... I mean, you actually mentioned this, Simon. You you asked me, you said, is, uh, is it sort of like the difference between alien and aliens where alien was like a horror film and aliens was sort of like an action movie straight up. Right. And to some degree it is. I mean, I think this movie is very dark. It does have the trappings and the formula of a lot of the revenge horror films in the late seventies. I'm specifically thinking of stuff like last house on the left, you know, the West Craven movies. Um, the ending is very stark and you know, a lot of people like the road warrior better and I understand why, because it's a lot more entertaining to watch from start to finish because it's a pure action film. We'll get to that very shortly. But I actually prefer the first film. I, I like the fact that we we get to know who this character is, and he hardly speaks throughout any one of the films. I think he has like 16 lines of dialogue, right? But I do think that there is a character arc. And so although the formula is somewhat familiar... George Miller still shoots it in a way and has like a specific tone and and the fact that it's so influential that I can't help but not think that this is the best movie in the entire series, including better than Fury Road. I really do think that this movie was a game changer. I mean, look at how many movies were influenced by Mad Max, like the entire series, like also like influenced by the Road Warrior and Thunderdome. But I mean, you think of like Star Wars, The Matrix, Robocop, Demolition Man, Back to the Future, even like Tupac made a video that was influenced and inspired from the Road Warrior. Yeah, you know, and, and it goes on and on and on. And it's not just the fact that it's a dystopian future. It's not just the fact that it's like a revenge tale. It's, it's like the costumes, the dialogue, the over-the-top performances, the score, the soundtrack, the music, the cars – Everything about it, it's, it's most likely influenced more movies than Star Wars, I think. Me thinks. What, what's weird about it as a revenge movie 
is uh is the pacing of it for like we spend so much time with max and his family uh his wife and kid uh just kind of hanging out or getting out of scrapes it's not until spoiler alert uh you know over three quarters of the way into the film that they finally get dusted and uh at that point there it's that's really when mad max is born until then he's really just kind of a guy named max I really think that they set out to make this movie about the character Jim Goose, played by Steve Bisley. And he was the one who originally auditioned for, for the lead role in this film. He was best friends to Mel Gibson. So the story goes that basically Mel Gibson accompanied Steve Bisley to the auditions. He showed up the night after getting into like a bar fight because he was pissed drunk and his face was totally like bruised and battered. And he had like a big black eye and whatnot. And the casting director asked Mel Gibson to come back the following week to play an extra because they needed these like thugs and goons. So Mel Gibson came back a week later and of course his face had healed and he's really handsome and good looking and charismatic. So they decided to hire Mel Gibson. So what I think happened was they somehow changed the script on the fly. And I think if you think about it, this movie is called Mad Max, but it's really about two characters for the first two thirds of this film. And the character of Max played by Mel Gibson, he's not even the, the hot, he's not the hot headed sort of like mad, crazy character who's got like a temper and whatnot. It's actually his partner, Jim Goose. I mean, do you remember the scene where the lawyer steps in to, to, f- Free the outlaw. Well, who was it? it? Was um, I don't know if it was Toe Cutter that they free. But no, anyways, it was another guy. It, no, it was not. Yes, it was Johnny the Boy. I think right. So, anyways, the lawyer shows up, and it's Jim Goose that loses his shit, that loses his cool, and that goes crazy. And Jim Goose is actually the wild man. He's the hothead in this movie, and a good portion of the first half of this film focuses on his character to the point where. Like, I mean, even if you think about it, what happens when Jim Goose is uh, put in the hospital because he's torched to death, like he's lit up on fire? Mel Gibson's character, Max, goes to visit him in the hospital. He's all upset over him. He's like, that, that creature in there, that's not Goose. And what does he do? He retires. He doesn't go crazy and seek out revenge. He actually retires. He's very timid, and he's, he's an easygoing guy, and he's actually a really nice guy. He's not at all the Mad Max that the title of the film leads you to believe he is. It's only until his wife and child are killed that he's pushed over the edge and that's when he seeks out revenge from my point of view is that I really think that this movie doesn't start off to be a movie about Mad Max. It's really about Jim Goose and his partner. And then because of what happens to Jim Goose, Mad Max ends up taking over and he has to resist becoming the animal that people like toe cutter become. So for you, it's more as though the movie pulls the rug under our feet in the sense that there's a character who's, almost comes across as secondary for uh, the better portion of, of, of the running length. And then in the final reel, oh man, okay, the guy who said, doesn't say much, who is more in the background, comes full center. And, and yeah, although, although, although there is a subtle hint in the title as to who the movie is. Well, well, that's the thing. If the movie was not titled Mad Max and you're a first-time viewer and you watch this movie, there could be a good reason for you to believe that it can go either way and it can actually follow the character of Goose instead of Mad Max, right? Yeah. But the movie is called Mad Max. It's no different than Top Gun, like Maverick and Iceman. And a lot of people think that there's like this homoerotic subtext to each and every single one of these movies. I don't necessarily see it specifically in this movie. But I do think that there is clearly uh, a, a very deep, close relationship between him and his partner. And that, yeah, that, that, well, that leads him to quit the force. Like he quits being a police officer when he sees what happens to his partner, Goose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're obviously dear friends. They're not just colleagues. So, 
But I think the whole, uh, I mean, I, I, I was listening to you, uh, your, your, your thoughts there, Rookie. Uh, rookie? <laughs> Ricky. Forgot your name for a moment. And uh, it was actually really interesting. But I think despite all that, it still actually supports what the story of the movie is doing. I mean, Max is a rather calm person. His demeanor isn't uh, particularly excitable and whatnot. But he does express uh, a distinct fear at some point. He's confronted by his captain. I, I, as I recall, I did re-watch the movie a couple weeks back. As I recall, he's confronted by the police captain as he's threatening to, to quit. And, and he expresses this uh, fear, this possibility that he's on the edge. He hasn't fallen over yet, but it's, it's getting there. And he's just one incident away from becoming uh, a loose cannon. And his, a lot of his colleagues are kind of loose cannons. You have Goose, you have the, uh, the more um, uh, plumpy fellow who's, uh, uh, he's spying on two, two lovers at the start of the movie. So even the people on the police force are kind of weird. Like, let alone, you know, it's just setting aside uh, Toe Cutter, El Kata, and, and his, his gang, who are obviously a bunch of wild ruffians even the people working for the police are—they've lost one or two of their marbles already. So the whole world around him is becoming mad. M M Max is the last one to become mad, and I guess it's that's why it's the most you know, shocking thing in the movie. Because up until then, he had been such a such a quaint little fellow, just doing his job. You know what I mean? Well, think about this, Simon. So it's your first time watching this film, right? But think about. Me as a kid watching it when I'm younger, anyone watching it when it came out originally in 1979. I really do think that Mad Max represents a turning point for the development of the hero and or anti-hero in the 20th century. And that, that's why I think it's, it's a really influential movie. And in terms of like the violence, like the movie was criticized heavily for being so incredibly violent. And I think even to this day, despite the fact that we have movies like Hostel and Saw, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, by the way, Saw, of course, was influenced by this movie. I think it's still very brutal, even t by today's standards, but I don't think it's exploitive. I think this is very much a film about violence, as much as it, as it is about the psychological as well as physical damage that violence has upon society. Uh, can I talk about one of the things I think holds this movie back, which is something I never hear people talking about? Please do. Um, Brian May's score. I really... <laughs> really dislike the score there uh, to be clear there are aspects of that there are scenes in which the score works fine sort of the more horrorish scenes uh, in which the score is more discordant are fine but then there's other scenes where like you know when when max is sort of coming into his own uh as mad max and is really starting to um to to uh to own his his uh his love of violence if you want to put it that way and the score is actually like triumphant Throughout, throughout various scenes like that, it's got you know these big brassy horns, mm -hmm. and it it makes it feels like the movie doesn't like the score doesn't understand the movie at that point, um, and that's that happens that took me out of the film like four or five times. I didn't have this problem weirdly with the Road Warrior, which Brian May also scored, but I just didn't I didn't feel like he necessarily had a great grip on the tone of this movie. Yeah, but the Road Warrior, the score for the Road Warrior is incredible. Incredible. It's funny because I didn't really notice the score for this movie unless it was one of those really horrific moments like, what, for example, when he visits Goose at the hospital and or when his wife and child are, are, uh, are killed. Uh, but I don't really remember the score, actually. Listen for it next time you watch it. But anyway, it was, it was, it was something it, – it felt um, – it was the only aspect of the movie that felt dated 
in the sense that it, it sort of felt like like an action adventure like TV score from the period, where it, which really didn't suit the darkness of the material. Uh, so I think that was a, a personal stumbling block for me. Well, the thing is, I, I kind of feel like this movie is influenced by so many different genres. Like I brought up the horror genre, but also, of course, like the racing genre, the biker movies from like the uh, mid to early 70s. Um, it, it, it just it riffs on so many different genres that maybe that is why the score is all over the place. Like, I mean, I, I, you can also bring up Westerns, of course, and. And I don't know, but I, I think, you know, put aside the score, I think the reason why I like this movie better than than all four movies is because uh, it's because I really do think it's a character piece. Like, I really do think we get to see Max's descent into madness. When the road warrior starts, he's sort of like this mythical figure. And it's a completely different character, even though it's still Mad Max. Uh, here we get to see him before he becomes the deranged outlaw. Mm hmm. I think that something that people don't talk about a lot is the fact that, um, like, yeah, Matt, Max himself is definitely sort of uh, he. If he's not the prototype for the anti for the modern antihero, then he's certainly very close. Um, but I think one of the reasons these movies are allowed to function is because Max isn't that interesting, mm. um, and I, I don't mean that as a dig necessarily. I just mean that he's so he's a very simple character. Uh, you know, he. He is a guy, and then he isn't. He he is he is a human until he he is dehumanized, but never fully. Um, he's not that different from Batman, really. Uh, you know, except he has dead family instead of dead parents. Um, but the uh, he is kept simple so that the world building is allowed to be more complex without anything getting in the way of anything else. Um, but I don't I don't think anyone. Uh, I don't think anyone would argue that Max is like a psychologically complex character. You mentioned uh, Batman. At least Batman has Bruce Wayne. You know, through Bruce Wayne, we're really discovering what makes Batman tick. Whereas that's not even the case with Max. And and that's not the first time that sort of a comment is brought up. The fact that Max, despite the fact that his name is in the title of. Uh, I guess officially all four, although on this side of uh, the globe uh, we call it the Road Warrior. Uh, but even though his name is is in the it is in the title, he is not necessarily the most interesting or the most layered of all the characters that we come across. He's uh, the vehicle, no pun intended, to to put the plot in motion and and for the story to evolve around him. And and it, it's. Again, this first one's a little bit different because we do have to know him or at least who he was before he became mad. But, you know, as this show progresses and the, our next recording session when we talk about Beyond Thunderdome and Fury Road, that definitely uh, will become uh, – there will be a, a definite clear through line where, where Max is not necessarily the most fleshed out person out. He's still cool for how he dresses and it's Mel Gibson or it's Tom Hardy and, you know, they're cool. But as a character, no, he's not necessarily the most exciting guy in the movie. It's it's everybody around him. It's Goose. It's Toll Cutter. It's Lord Humongous. It's 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 Furiosa. It's it's Aunt Entity. You know, it's uh, Max is really the most charismatic individual. Yeah. I uh, I completely disagree. I think, okay, first of all, we're just going to focus on the first film here. I think Mad Max is the most interesting character in his film. Who's more interesting and charismatic than Mel Gibson playing Mad Max in his movie? It sure as hell ain't Toe Cutter. I mean, Toe Cutter is an over-the-top crazy villain, and he's hilarious to watch. I mean, 
the stuff he does in this movie where he starts shooting mannequins and he starts awkwardly touching people's faces and he steals ice cream from a woman for no reason. I'm not entirely sure what's happening there. And even when the old lady pulls the shotgun on him, and just the way he reacts, he's <laughs> screaming. He's like, oh my God, I'm afraid of guns. I was like, okay, clearly he's a Royal Shakespeare actor, right? But his performance is so over the top, so cartoonish that I can't say he's, he's more interesting and or charismatic than Mad Max. The thing I like about Mad Max is he starts off as a very simple, ordinary, quiet man who's driven to do what he needs to do to, to survive. And even though in this film he does take revenge, the next three films aren't about taking revenge. It's all about survival. And so I actually think he is the most charismatic and interesting character of the entire series up until Mad Max Fury Road, which we'll talk about next week. But, um, I mean, I love the character of Toe Cutter. Like, I mean, he's a fun character. He's one of those characters. You remember his name. You remember the performance. And even though you don't necessarily remember the actor's name, who's, of course, once again in the new movie, playing the baddie in the new movie, um, you do remember his performance. Like, he has a lasting impression on you. But I can't. That's a Hugh Keys burn, by the way. We should throw that out there. He knows this, but most people don't know this. Like, he's not a household name, you know? So I, I, I don't know. And like even like like I mean the, the first villain we're introduced to in this movie is the Knight Rider, and we only get to see him ride a car, laugh out loud with his crazy girlfriend in the, in the passenger seat, and then he's dead. So who else do we get to know besides Goose and I mean his wife? Like, I'm sorry. I'm not gonna no no, what I'm I'm not denying that he's the most fleshed out person in this movie. I'm just saying that as a person who is the head of a franchise, there's not a lot to him. A lot of people, when they talk about Mad Max, they don't necessarily talk about the acting, even though it's Mel Gibson's first role and made him a star, but they talk about the action and the stunts. Well, yeah, I mean, it's more of a physical performance than an emotive performance. And that's true of, of Tom Hardy as well. There's not much, like you said, he's got maybe 15 lines of dialogue, a movie, uh, and... 16. Six, whatever. Anyway, not a lot of dialogue. I mean, he probably has the most dialogue in this movie just because he has a wife. Um, but... Yeah, it's not a, it's not exactly uh it's 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 not it's not exactly the most difficult acting. It's more about it's more about physical presence and like you said charisma. And as I said before, I, I wasn't necessarily intending uh when I talk about Max as a cipher or, you know, sort of a, a MacGuffin or a placeholder or whatever. It's not necessarily a criticism. I just think that it's it's interesting to uh to to contrast him with the figures at at ostensibly the, the centers of other franchises because he's he's a lot more minimal as a character. And that that still works in in the film's favor, in this film's favor, and in the sequels as well. I mean, you're both, you know, I guess the boring conclusion is you're both right. I mean, there there is enough there to to make them interesting. Otherwise, you know, these movies, and I get they'd still be good if if Max was really boring, because uh, there's so much uh, funky stuff going on around him. Uh, but at 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 its core, you do need an actor. If, and you can even probably make the case that this is a, a taller challenge than most because he's a character who doesn't have a lot of dialogue. You know, Mel, Mel Gibson and, and Tom Hardy really have to step up to the plate because they're not going to be able to talk a lot. Uh, they have to show a lot through, the, through, Simon, you were saying physicality or, or a gaze, their, their physical language uh, or, and, and the very the precious few lines they have. So you, know, you can probably make the case that it's an even more difficult acting challenge so you know props to whoever takes on the role and obviously pulls it off thankfully we have an actor here who who does pull it off 
I think the whole entire movie is difficult to pull up, considering that this movie was made in 1979 with no computer-generated effects, shot in 12 weeks, with a humble budget of $350,000, and that's Australian money. I'm not sure what that translates to here in North America, but it's not a lot of money. And I think it's mostly sand. It's a first-time feature. Okay, He used whatever resources he can get to the point where the DP was stealing props, and although he did return the props to the stores, okay? But, I, I mean, the reason why this movie holds up and holds up so well is because George Miller is an incredible filmmaker who understands how to make action sequences. And I'm so glad that we are ending the Sorted Cinema podcast talking about possibly my favorite movie franchise of all time, one of my favorite movies of all time. This is on my top 10, if not 20. And, you know, for eight years now recording this podcast, we've complained like time and time again about action movies and directors and how we didn't like the computer generated effects or we couldn't tell what was going on in these epic action set pieces because of the camera moving so fast and or just because it was poorly directed i mean george miller anyone who wants to make an action movie should it should be essential viewing you should have to watch all four Mad Max films if you're going to make a car chase sequence or any kind of action movie because he's the only one who's consistently done it right four times in a row to the point where not only has he done it right, but he's perfected it and he's done it better than anybody else, I think. I think that is why this movie is so brilliant. And it, it sounds kind of lame and or shallow to say that this movie is brilliant because of the car chase sequences and because of the, the stunt doubles and, and the work that they do. But come on, we got to give these guys credit. And it's also the camera work. I mean, the camera work is hypnotic. It's perfectly framed. There's not one ugly camera shot in this film. It, it's beautifully paced. It's well edited. And George Miller did the editing himself. Oh, wow. I didn't even... This is a miracle of economic filmmaking. Like, you know, when you, when you think of landmark Australian cinema and you think of, like, the Ausploitation era, like, you look at a movie like Mad Max and you compare it to other great movies like Wake and Fright and there's tons of great exploitation films that came out of Australia, especially in the early 80s. They do not compare to how great Mad Max is. I think this movie is amazing. And the fact, the fact that... You know, they they perform these stunts in real time. These are cars going at exactly 100 miles per hour with a DOP hanging off the back of like a motorcycle to try to get the perfect shot, to try to get the shot as close as possible to the action. I mean, even The Road Warrior, a lot of people think The Road Warrior is a better film, but it had 10 times the budget. It had a bigger crew. So, of course, it was easier for him to do an epic 30-minute car chase sequence at the very end. Uh, d- <laughs> uh on the issue of, I mean, at at some point we start talking about, you know, uh, when we start talking about budgets or or what 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 had what he had access to. At this point, uh, it's more the end result that I care about. Um, certainly, there's no no one will dispute that George Miller is an is a, a is a filmmaker of high ingenuity and inventiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about the road warrior soon. Uh, I wish you hadn't brought up wake and fright because I think actually it, it's, if we're, if we're going to talk exploitation, it's probably my favorite one. Um, still. Yeah. Uh, we talked about that at some point. Yeah. We did. Um, but, um, geez, now I'm just thinking about wake and fright and I'm but, so but, freaked but out. The, the thing is, I, I, it's not about budget. It's about the limited resources because the thing is when you make a movie, you make a movie with a crew. So there's the DP, there's the stuntman, there's the, uh, you know, 
what from the director or the writer, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so like when you think about a sequence like Knight Rider when he dies, so it's four seconds of screen time. That scene in which Knight Rider dies takes up four seconds of screen time. It took them three days to film. <laughs> like to the point where the process involved using a military booster rocket to propel the car to make it move faster. I think it went over 75 miles per hour. And you have this DOP getting as close to the action as possible to, to capture it on film to get the best camera shot he can. That takes skill. That takes guts. That takes balls. That's, that is something to praise, you know? So, so if yeah. you, it, I understand it, you know, we, we, we bring this up each and every single week where we talk about the screenplay and the character development and the acting, but this is not that kind of movie. And like, like George Miller didn't necessarily set out to make a statement and, or, and, or have like this big complicated plot and, or focus on having like the greatest actors in the world hire to, to work in his film because he wanted to go out and win an Oscar for best actor, best actress. Like he was making a specific type of film. And for this genre, I think it's, at its best. Well, if his statement is that vehicular murder can be awesome on movie, that's loud and clear, George. Loud and clear. Well, and we've seen so many great movies of this kind. I mean, we can even bring up Steven Spielberg's Duel, which is a fantastic film, except replace a shark with a truck. But it's an amazing movie. You can't deny it's an amazing movie. Uh, yeah, actually, I talked about Duel uh, when we did a we did a sort of a TV movie thing on the Televerse a while back, and yeah, that I saw that for the first time about a year ago, and it was just amazing. Um, anyway, any uh, I think I feel like we should be closing this off because we've still, still got a whole other movie to talk about. Anything else we want to mention before we move on to the Road Warrior? I, uh, I I have to talk about the final scene because that is also one of the reasons why I love this movie because. You know, nowadays we tend to get these movies that have like these twist endings, these shocking endings, these sort of like bleak, grim endings. But in the 80s, at least when I was growing up, uh, you know, we had movies like Ghostbusters and Back to the Future. You know, it was very bright and and happy and campy. And when I watched Mad Max for the first time, I'm like, holy shit, that's the end of the film. Like you Mm -hmm. have. Like you see Mad Max clearly become the anti-hero because he's out for vengeance. He's out for revenge. And after taking care of Toe Cutter, he goes up to Johnny the boy. He handcuffs him after he crashes and loots his car and whatnot. He handcuffs Johnny boy. And then he basically drops a bunch of gasoline over his body. And then he gives him a saw. And he's like, well, basically you can saw through your own ankle and or you can die because it's going to explode because I'm about to light this bitch up. And like, you know, that, that scene inspired the Saw franchise. Like, I mean, without that scene, there would be no Saw, which became one of the biggest money makers for the horror franchise. And that movie in itself was like a big deal. Right. But the point is, I think that's a fantastic ending. Like, and there's no emotional closure to this film and for the character Mad Max. But I think that's just like the best ending of all four movies. Edgar, any more thoughts? Oh, I just love those two little shots. I think they appear twice in the movie before Knight Rider uh, crashes and, and dies and before Tokata uh, crashes and dies. That little shot where their eyes pop out of their sockets. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, that recurs in the Road Warrior as well, that effect. Okay, no, wait. I just have to say two more quick things. Okay, first of all, I highly recommend everyone, if you're a fan of the series, to watch the movie with the DVD commentary. Because there are so many incredible, amazing, hilarious, over-the-top, you-won't-believe-it-what-the-fuck stories 
that go into the making of this movie. You know, like the simplest story is like, you know, he paid off the crew with beer instead of money to like the crazy story where the stuntman broke his leg and yet still performed the stunt to them appearing in the Guinness Book of World Records because of some of the stunts that they are performing. It's incredible. Watch the DVD commentary or, or listen to it, I should say. And also, this has my favorite line in any movie ever. And it's, they say people don't believe in heroes anymore. Well, damn them, you and me, Max, we're going to give them back their heroes. For some reason, that line has always stuck with me. And maybe it's because I watched it when I was a kid. But yeah, that's my favorite movie line ever. Iron- All right. Ironically, they fail. Yeah, they totally fail. No, that's not. Well, yes, actually, they do. Uh, anyway, the movie's called Mad Max, uh, 1979, f- freely available, I'm sure. Is is there a, there's got to be like a Blu-ray combo pack of these, right? Yeah, there is. Uh, I don't, I don't own it. Maybe you do, uh, Edgar, because I know you love Blu-rays. I, I have the blue of Road Warrior, I have the DVD of Mad Max, but apparently they released a box set with all original three films. Yeah, they have. It comes in a cool little tin can, uh, tin box as well. I also have the Screen Factory Blu-ray. It was pretty cheap, so I picked it up. How is the uh, Screen Factory Blu-ray? Um, you know, it's it's a pretty old movie. I think there's only so much you can do with the picture quality. But uh, there's some new interviews with uh, Mel Gibson, uh, David Egby, and uh, who plays his wife, Joni, uh, Joan Samuel. Yeah, they knew like the exclusive to that set recorded this year. They're pretty interesting. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, The Road Warrior. You're listening to Sordid Cinema. What are you doing? I want to know what you're doing. The chain in those handcuffs is high tensile steel. It'll take you 10 minutes to hack through it with this. Now, if you're lucky, you can hack through your ankle in five minutes. Go.
upon the humongous, the Lord humongous, the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller! You're back on Sorted Cinema. That was a clip from Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, a.k.a. just The Road Warrior in these parts. Um, this is one of my dad's favorite movies, and when I was growing up, I definitely only ever heard of it as The Road Warrior. And as far as I know, he has no affinity for the first movie whatsoever. Just really loves this one. So uh, I got to see it for the first time just this week, which was uh, which was an interesting experience to finally catch up on, on a family favorite. But we'll get there in a second. Uh, so this uh, is the second entry in the series. It finds Mac Rockatansky, still played by Mel Gibson, as uh, now now absolutely absorbed into the into the myth of Mad Max. In fact, he's introduced by a narrator who is not Max, uh, as this mythical figure uh, wandering the wasteland, uh, basically just trying to survive. Although occasionally, apparently, helping people get out of scrapes. In this case, he uh, ends up sort of encountering this uh, this colony. Which has, uh, which is guarding this large reserve of gas, and uh, they end up being menaced by a group led by a, f- a fellow known only as Lord Humongous. Uh, yes, he does ask to be taken seriously, despite the name. And uh, chaos ensues. I guess we can say for now. There's a kid. There's a dog, and there's clearly a whole lot more money being thrown around. Uh, and actually, sorry, Ricky, I have to start with you again. One of the <laughs> one of the reasons that I'm that. Uh, one of the th- one of the only things that surprises me about this being one of your favorite franchises is that it loves to kill dogs. Yeah, you know it's funny because each and every single time I watch this movie, I always forget that the dog dies, and when the dog dies, I just feel terrible watching the movie. But I love this movie. I love the movie because of Mel Gibson and his performance as Mad Max. I love the movie because it has better villains than the first film. I love Lord Humongous, the Warrior of the Wasteland, the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla. I love 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 the 30 minute car chase climax action set piece which is just mind-blowing which we're going to talk about eventually and uh i love the score i think this has one of the best scores for any freaking movie period hands down i just think it's incredible um you know in terms of and and the thing about this film is it actually feels like they actually know what they want to do in terms of the story because the first movie says sometime in the near future you're not you're not entirely sure like is this a dystopian future is it like a parallel universe was there like a nuclear holocaust? Like what is going on? In this film, it's a vision of a post-nuclear holocaust world. And I love the opening montage sequence. Like it's all in black and white. It has that voiceover. It just sets the mood and tone for the entire film. And it's like you said, Mad Max in this film, he's like this mythical figure. And when we get the opening narration, which is the, um, it, it's basically the narration comes from the feral kid when he's older you don't really realize it till the very end. Right. And it just like, I don't know. It just sort of like, just, this movie is just, mm, this movie is brilliant. This movie yeah. is like, this movie is like beautiful. Okay. Like if I can marry a film, it would be the road warrior. You know what I mean? Like if this movie would come into life and turn into like a beautiful person, it would be the road warrior. Would be like my soulmate. Like this movie is just like, mwah, it's gorgeous. I love it. <laughs> love it. I can eat this movie up. Like if this movie was like, Apple pie would be like the greatest apple pie in the world. Jesus Christ, Rick, do you want to fuck this movie or this eat movie it? This movie is incredible, <laughs> like incredible. <laughs> Edgar, it. do you have similar do you have similar appetites towards uh, the Road Warrior? 
Uh, I don't know if I'd fuck it, but it's it's uh, it's good for a date. That's for sure. I'd make out with it a little bit. That that's for certain. No, I like it a lot. Uh, I think it's it's a great follow up to the first one. We've established who Max is. Uh, he's a he's a shell of a man with only a, a modicum of uh, of of anything you and I could possibly recognize as as a man. Capital M. Uh, and that's really interesting. Mel Gibson really brings it, despite the fact that he's not given a lot of dialogue. We've already had this discussion when we talked about the first movie. And I, I appreciate uh, the design of this film almost more than anything else. I mean, we'll, we'll get Ricky. I mean, you, you sort of have a hard boner now over that 30-minute uh, climax. You know, uh, my, my boner's coming on. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. But I like just the design just the way this movie looks, it seems to have a real appreciation of where the story is set. This uh, treacherous, barren, or near barren, uh, Australian desert. I guess I'm assuming it's somewhere in the outback, as as they call it down there. Um, I, I love the way this film is shot. It's uh, once again, I can't remember who shot this. I mean, just uh, David Egby. Is it David Egby? No, it's uh, Dean Semler. Dean Semler. And uh, props, man, props, because this movie is beautiful. And it's beautifully capturing a, a terrifying, terrible world. And, and that really gets to me. I, I think a, a, a director and a DOP who can pull that stunt off, if I can call it such, uh, man, I cannot... I cannot give higher praise than than when it than when a duo can pull that off. This is a beautiful looking movie, and uh, you love Lord Humongous, Ricky. I, I love the guy who introduced the guy who calls him the Ayatollah of rock and roll. I can't remember what that character's name is, but poor bastard who gets his fingers chopped off by the boomerang. I love that guy. What a what a, what a lovely little weirdo that guy is. Has anyone considered that maybe in the world of the Mad Max movies, the rest of the world is fine? It's just Australia that's fucked up? <laughs> no. I have wondered that, actually. I'm, I'm not kidding. I have wondered that. Sort of like a 28 uh, Days Later type of thing, where apparently the rest of the world is fine. It's just Great Britain that's fucked up. Based on the opening narration slash montage sequence of this movie, I'm going to have to disagree. No, I, well, maybe it's a lie, though. Maybe they're trying to make themselves feel better. Anyway... Uh, I'm just I'm just fucking around here. Uh, I definitely prefer The Road Warrior to Mad Max. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, it's more fun. It's uh, it's not as somber. Uh, it's not it's not quite as bleak, even though in theory it should be bleaker, considering any semblance of a society that existed in the first movie is gone, more or less, by this one. Uh, when you see a when you see like a, a grassy area in the distance, that's about as pastoral as it gets. Um. But it's just it's it's just a little bit more fun to watch, especially with the addition of the uh, the wacky sidekick character that really shouldn't work. The guy with the uh, with the flying machine. Yeah, the, the the inclusion of the of the sidekick and the kid and the dog it's like it's stuff that really shouldn't work or that sounds like cutesy 80s bullshit um, actually really does. And I think that's partially down to the for a the fact that the that the, the guy playing the feral kid uh, is actually really good. Okay, well, the character you're referring to, his name is the Gyro Captain. It's the Jaunty Fellow, who's played by Bruce Spence, who went on to be this great character actor and appeared in like a bunch of Star Wars films and The Matrix and whatnot. And he's the one who pilots a small helicopter. It's like a homemade helicopter. And he basically becomes Mad Max's faithful companion, his servant, if you want to call him that, his scruffy <laughs> little boy 
his uh his like savior his like lucky charm his rabbit's foot that is what he's called he's called a gyro captain yes uh and yeah the, the addition of that of that character and the feral kid and the dog and this bevy of concerned women etc like all this stuff really shouldn't work but it just does uh because it, it's also committed and colorful and it, it really helps to offset the uh, this 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 actually felt to me like like a like a more violent film than than the first one. I mean, it's it's not as pessimistic as uh, as as the first one, but it certainly there's there's a lot of brutality going on for a film that's so sort of like fun and colorful, um, and it, it it has a really tricky balance to maintain. And I think those sort of more jaunty elements help offset that. Mm-hmm. Can I just say that Humongous is an interesting character, an interesting villain, because. The story goes that Humongous is actually Goose from the original film. Wait, by I, the story, do you mean your story that you just made up? No, it was actually written <laughs> no, no, in the original script. No, 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 I've heard script. of this. Go on, go on, Rick. I've heard it, of it this. Was, yeah, the original script, Humongous is actually Goose. And so the whole idea is that because of what happens to Goose in the first film, and he's completely blown up and burnt to crisp and whatnot, that is why in this movie he's all covered up because his flesh is all burnt off, Right. And so he becomes like one of the outlaws, one of the villains, one of these crazy like criminals who goes around raping women and looting, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem was the first film wasn't a box office smash. Like hardly anyone saw the first film worldwide. And so the thing is they decided to change the script, not necessarily change it, but just not really focus on the fact that this is the character Goose. So they just decided to you know, not mention as the character Goose and just let him be humongous. And that's about it. So just in case anyone had not seen the first movie, because like you said, Simon, in North America, this movie is called The Road Warrior. It's not called Mad Max 2 because at the time no one had seen Mad Max. So so that was the thing. So the, the initial intent was that humongous was actually Goose. And so the idea was that uh, Mad Max would actually eventually have to fight off against humongous aka goose and he would actually eventually have to kill off his best friend slash ex-partner geez they could have at least thrown him a bone by calling him humongoose yeah well and and, you know the character in this movie the road warrior i mean first of all all of the characters inspired tons of characters in future films they inspired wrestlers like we we can talk about the legion of doom and road warriors who were like it's famous like wrestling tag team in the wcw but i mean this character also inspired bane in the comic books like, if you look at the character, his physique, his mask, yeah. everything about him, that is Bane. And it's just so funny that Tom Hardy got cast in the new movie. And in that movie, he's wearing this, like, faceplate. And he kind of looks and acts like Bane to some extent in that movie. But this is the movie that inspired the character Bane. Interesting. Interesting. Edgar, how about you? How do you feel about Mad Max versus Road Warrior? Uh, shotgun your head, pick one, go. Well, I'm also going to pick uh, the road where it's, uh, I guess, a boring answer in the sense that uh, most people say that uh, it's actually kind of hard to find the people who prefer Mad Max over the road warrior. Uh, again, it's I, I guess maybe it's because of the, the type of movies I watched growing up and the type of film fan uh, that I am. I have nothing but admiration for the original. I think we we. We hardly said a, a bad word towards it in, in our first segment, and I stand by every comment uh, I, I shared about the first movie, but I, I kind of like the fact that the Road Warrior is bigger. I kind of like the fact that the studio said, okay, here's a few extra dollars. Now make the movie that you could have when you made the original, but now you can do more because you have an actual you know, fully-fledged crew and 
and I guess more cars to blow up and whatnot. And I, I like that about the Road Warrior. Uh, and I like another thing. I, I, I recently wrote an article for, for Salon's site, a little Mad Max retrospective. And among the things you'll find in that article, and I'd like to know your opinions, uh, Ricky and Simon, on this. I'm under the impression, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm under the impression that Max himself doesn't really have much of a character arc in this film. Uh, Ricky, you love dogs, so do I. Uh, his dog unfortunately perishes. It's a grisly demise at the hand of Lord Humongous's, uh, uh dickwads. And it seems to me it's only the moment his dog perishes that he decides, okay, I'm going to go back to the gas compound and, and finally help these people. I mean, ten minutes ago, he, he left them. They pleaded. They tried to... Uh, they tried to reason with him, with his conscience, with his rationale, and he would have none of it. But his dog died. Okay, now I'm going to kick the bad guy's ass for you guys. Like, well, there's no, well, he, doesn't, he doesn't grow, and I actually kind of like that about the movie. To be fair, that's also when he loses his wheels. Very fair point, fair point. And, and he's also the, rescued by the gyro captain who takes him back to the base where therefore he wakes up and realizes their plan now that they have this amazing plan to actually go and start this new society and have all this gasoline, so it's his best option. I don't think it's a revenge tale like the first movie where he's trying to get the re revenge on, on uh, Humongous because he killed his dog. It's not, uh, it's not John Wick here. It feels... Uh, I, have, I have yet to see John Wick. I'm told it's good, though. Um... It feels like even though he's committing what seems like an altruistic act by helping the people who are clearly good for the most part, but he's not doing it because they're good and it'll be helpful to them. He's doing it because he's going to survive and he's pissed off. Uh, and I kind of like that about the movie. He doesn't change. He's a selfish loner from the start of the movie to the to the end of the movie, even though you can clearly make the case that he's helping other people he's kind of doing it just for himself I, and i like that about the movie i, I kind of feel like all four movies he's kind of the same like i think that he is it's not so much that he's selfish it's about survival and he doesn't really know who any of these people are when he first meets these people and he doesn't he doesn't know if he can trust these people if they're good people and or not and each and every single one of the movies it takes him a while to actually realize that he actually does want to help these people and you see it clearly in the new movie mad max fury road the thing i like better and we're going to talk about this next week. But the thing I like better about the original films is, especially in the first film, is Mad Max actually gets the shit kicked out of him. In the first film, he's shot in the knee by a shotgun. He's run over. His arm is completely run over by the motorcycle. He's beaten up. His wife dies. His son dies. His best friend gets blown up, etc., etc. In this movie, he gets the shit kicked out of him, you know, to the point where he almost doesn't survive. Uh, his dog dies. He gets rescued by the gyro captain, but he doesn't feel like a superhero. He doesn't feel like, like, it, like when you watch these movies, you actually think that something bad is going to happen to him and or the people that he cares about and, and or the dogs and or, and or anyone or anything that's close to him or that he cares about. Something bad's going to happen and it usually does. Unlike the new movie, he doesn't feel like a superhero in these movies. He feels like he can be damaged and hurt, and he is. And that's what I love about these films. And so the thing is, when he does wake up at the base and he does decide that he can drive the truck and he is their only hope, he's not lying. Like, it's true. But at the same time, I'm not entirely sure he's doing it for those people. I think for him, he sees it. 
I think for him, he sees it as a break for freedom. He sees a better option. It's like Simon says, he doesn't have a car anymore. Like, what's he going to do? He's going to walk the deserts. So, you know, it only makes sense. But I do think that he does have sort of like a liking for the young boy. I mean, not in that. I was going to say. Well, okay, that came out really wrong. <laughs> but you know what? You know what's funny is you know the character with the mohawk who rides a motorcycle and he has like the flamboyant, blonde-haired beauty in the back, right? Like yeah. the guy that everyone thinks is like the pretty boy, and everyone thinks that those characters are gay. Like the actual backstory of those characters is that he saved that that character when he was a young boy. So to him, it's sort of like his his adopted son. And everyone read it completely wrong, which I totally understand. Because even when I was a kid, I read it as like that's a gay couple. That, that's but... actually it's an interesting thing with George Miller's movies that I've noticed is is he and and whoever he's writing films with will come up with these elaborate stories for everything that's on screen, even if none of it is represented in the screenplay or in anything that happens. Like like I was I was especially this happened with we'll we'll talk again about Fury Road later, but there are things in that film that if you ask him about it, he's got paragraphs of things to say about it, even if they're only on screen for a few minutes. So it, it I don't, I don't know how much of it really comes across, but there is this idea that everything that, that is, that is on screen, there's nothing that's just sort of like random bullshit. It all feels like it's part of a universe that's actually been considered. And, and a lot of it, you can call bullshit. Like you can call bullshit. Like, okay, that ca- those characters were initially meant to be gay, but now you just don't want to admit it. Like who knows? Right. But with the character, like I was talking about Humongous, how Humongous is really the character of Goose in the first movie, and it's clear as day. Like, if you look at the shotgun he uses, the, the actual gun he uses, it's the exact same gun he uses in the first film. If you look at the cars that he and his goons drive, they drive the exact same police cars as the first film. Everything about his costume, the way he acts, his dialogue, um, whatever props he's using, that character was clearly meant and designed to be Goose, and they just decided to change it because no one saw the original film. Everything else, I totally agree. I mean, even with the new film, there's lots of things that apparently are because they are in George Miller's head, but they don't come, a- come, come across in the actual movies that we are watching unless you read about it, which is weird because uh, then, yeah. then you can call bullshit. But again, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It feel, I'm actually, I actually think it's a compliment. There's so many, like if you watch something like, I don't know, uh, Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch or something, there are th- there's this idea that, oh, we're going to throw in Zeppelins and we're going to throw in uh gatling guns we're gonna throw in ninjas we're gonna go th- we're gonna throw in every sig- single piece of random bullshit we can think of because it looks cool and i never get that impression with george miller's movies everything feels like it's part of a it's part of something that's actually been thought through everything seems to have sort of a practical purpose even if you don't necessarily know what it is oh just a tiny comment i just i was i'm glad you uh elucidated us on the backstory of those two characters because i kind of thought they were a gay couple <laughs> Well, and they could be. Like I said, when you watch the movie, it doesn't matter what's in George Miller's head and or what's in a screenplay that didn't make it to the big screen. I mean, we see what we see because that's what's filmed and edited and cut into the movie. So if you interpret it as a gay couple, okay. I mean, a lot of people think there's a lot of homoerotic subtext to his movies, which I don't see. Like, I maybe see it in these two characters. I think the thing about Mad Max, the franchise, is... It sort of views masculinity in a different view the way the us North Americans normally view it. You know what I mean? It's not like football jocks. It's like it's okay if you look like you dressed like you came out of a sex shop. <laughs> like you it's got these football pads, time. but you're wearing these letter pants. Like it's just really weird. You got <laughs> your butt talk showing. It's like I don't know, but it's a very masculine film, despite the fact that a lot of the characters in this film 
look like they've been on the floats at Gay Pride here in Montreal. <laughs> so yeah, but okay, that highway chase sequence at the very end of the film. First of all, we get this opening, stunning, fantastic opening chase sequence at the start of the film, which I think is amazing. But the 30-minute climax, I believe it's 30 minutes long. I felt like it was 30 minutes long. In which you get a trailer truck, a school bus, all types of vehicles, motorcycles. You get a homemade helicopter. It's this big, huge like chase. You have a car that looks like it came out of the movie um, Speed Racer. Um, <laughs> I mean, that whole sequence. Like, I, I remember I was talking to you, Simon, on the phone. And this is before you watched the movie. And this is before I rewatched the movie for like the 30th time, right? I was like, I remember that sequence and I remember it being shot in a way where it honestly looked like George Miller had like say 32 cameras and he, 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 he placed the cameras in certain specific spots and on top of vehicles and mounted on like cars and trucks and what have you. And then he just shot the action sequence and it's actually one take because it's so seamless. Like the way it's cut, it's like, it, it looks like it was all just done in one take and they just like put it in like a timeline and, and started chopping away and decided what camera angle to use at what time. This is, I think, the greatest car chase sequence in the, in the history of cinema. I can't think of anything better. And I can think of stuff like Ronin and Bullet and French Connection and Matrix and you name it. But I think this is by far the best. I think it's brilliant. Uh, well, I guess we'll have, to, we'll have to revisit that subject when we talk about the last two films. But uh, for now, any, uh, any final comments on The Road Warrior before we wrap this one up? No, I, I I can only echo Ricky's uh, sentiments uh, towards the climax. It really is a ballet of of motor vehicle uh, mayhem. It's it's uh, there are not a lot of movies that that do what the Road Warriors uh, final action set piece does. I mean, I don't think Ricky, you've been using the number thirty minutes. This old, I don't think it's really thirty minutes, but it's very very long, and. Even just by your standard length of action sequences, this one is significantly longer. I mean, literally, I think if you yeah, take take a note of what what uh, what what the running length is when that move when that scene begins and what the running length is when that scene ends, like it is much longer than your average action action sequence, and it's so well edited and 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 well shot. At, as you said, Ricky, and there's, there's such a variety of little episodes in that sequence, how this person is dying and how that person is dying and what Max is doing during all of this and what the feral kid is doing during all of this. And the, the gyro pilot comes back to help out a little bit. You know, there's so much going on. It feels like controlled chaos, though. I mean, it's... It's all in director in the director's hands, and the director knows exactly what he's doing. So, don't worry. You know, I know what I'm doing. We're getting somewhere. Bear with me and enjoy the ride. And it's it's extremely enjoyable. Yeah. Well, when you talk about stakes and raising the stakes, no one does it better in action movies than George Miller, specifically with the Mad Max franchise. I mean, every time I watch these movies, I'm just like gripping onto my seat because I'm like, holy shit, something bad's gonna happen to Max and or to people he cares about and or his friends and or, and or his helpers. And you see it in this, in this climax, like people die. You know, this is not the Avengers Age of Ultron. This is not a Michael Bay movie where half of Chicago is exploding, but no one seems to die. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm, I'm so glad George Miller made the fourth film, which I can't wait to talk about. And the last thing I'm going to say is I love the dog. His actual name is Dog. 
and they rescued him from the SPCA the day before shooting. And uh, that was the day before the dog was about to be put to sleep. And it's like now one of the most famous dogs of all time because it's Mad Max's dog. Yeah. Yeah, good for them. And good now for- he's the president of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you all so much for listening. I guess we should be wrapping this one up. Uh, Edgar, where can our uh, listeners find you online should they feel the urge? Oh, I'm still writing for Sound on Sight, even though I don't do this show uh, anymore. I'm, I'm still at Sound on Sight, still the same two columns almost every week. And I have a Facebook account. I, I've sort of lost uh, touch with uh, Twitter. It got a little bit boring after a while. But I'm on Facebook. It's If you feel the urge to see what I'm writing about, just uh, it's my regular name. I don't have a fancy name on, on Facebook, just Edgar Shepard. All right. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sucker Howell. Ricky, you run the official uh, Sound On Sight Twitter account at Sound On Sight. And the next show, which we'll be recording in, a, in just a few days, will be Beyond Thunderdome and Fury Road. We're very much looking forward to it. You should be, too. Stay tuned for that. Uh, anything else before we sign off? I just want to give a quick plug to Edgar's four articles about the Mad Max franchise, which you can find over at the homepage, soundonsight.org, specifically the top right corner of the website. They're fucking fantastic. Thank you, Edgar. So glad you wrote them. And uh, yeah, so we have one more episode of Sword of Cinema to record. We're going to review Beyond the Thunderdome and Mad Max Fury Road. We're going to come back with our 500th episode, and then that is it. Hopefully, we're going to revise the show in a different format. So so thank you to everyone who's listened throughout the years, and uh, hope you listen to the next two episodes, specifically episode 500. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back.